the Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. If you haven't yet read The Daughters of Erie Town, head to the nearest independent bookstore and grab a copy. It's a treasure chest full of people you'll fall in love with and life lessons that will jumpstart your own life. Like, you have a big, bold adventure waiting for you, dear one. Don't be late for your own life. That just might be my favorite line from The Daughters of Erie Town, the New York Times bestselling novel by Connie Schultz. But there are so many lines to choose from, like, we never run out of chances to be somebody else better, or God loves everyone, even the bigots. Today, Connie joins me to talk about her first novel and about some of her life detours that might or might not be tucked in that novel. Connie is a Pulitzer Prize winning nationally syndicated columnist for Creator Syndicate. She's also a professional in residence at my alma mater and hers, Kent State University in the School of Journalism. Connie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Regina. It's good to see you. You too. Now, okay, New York Times bestselling author, Pulitzer Prize winner. What's next? Like the Nobel Prize in Literature, an oh, Oscar, no. a Tony? <laughs> uh, what's next is the virus ends and I get to see my grandchildren again. That'd be a nice start. That would be a nice start. So, Connie, you've written hundreds, maybe thousands of columns. You've written two memoirs. What made you say, okay, I'm taking on a novel? What was, was there one moment that, like, it's time? Well, this really came about through my editor, Kate Medina, at Random House. Right before my second book came out in 2007, to give you an idea how long ago this was, she and the publisher of Random House took me to lunch and said that they thought the working class had been really underrepresented in modern literature. And I know you and I share those working class roots. You can't argue that that isn't true, right? And Or if we are in them, we're often dolts or oafish or we make big mistakes and then we're gone or we're problems or, or mostly almost invisible. So I agreed with her. But it took a while for me to believe that I could be somebody who could do something about that, because that was why they wanted to meet with me. And eventually, it came down to my turning to Kate about two years later. She came to Cleveland, and we were talking, and I said, you know, I just keep thinking about how front doors were not what you went to in the neighborhoods I grew up in, and that if somebody was knocking on that front door, she was bringing trouble with her. And she said, start there. So the original novel started with the knock on the door which anyone who's read it will know, but I don't want to give away too much. Sure. And it, that, it, that knock ends up moving to the middle of the book because she thought I was giving away too much of the story. Well, I love that you're giving a voice to people like my dad, who was a roofer. I have his hard hat. I have his lunch pail. Like you're, you have your dad's. Yep. I got my dad's hard hat up above here. Don't you love that? And you know, they, their whole life was work. My dad had no hobbies except work and feeding 11 kids. And I feel like you also gave the men in that town a, a voice in the sense of you, you told their story and their struggle too, not just the women. Well, that was certainly the goal. In fact, when um, I turned in my first draft, my editor said that the most fully realized character at that time was Brick McGinty. And I think part of it was, I didn't want any cliches or stereotypes to pop up in this novel, which meant I had to make the men as fully human as everyone else, because of course men are. And I was so nervous about getting it right with the main character, the main male character that I spent so much time on him. I had a friend tell me the other day, a male friend, he said, thank you for not making all the men jerks in this book. And I said, well, I don't think most men are jerks. So why would I do that? I mean, I've certainly written about the ones who, who are over the years, but I wanted to show, you know, part of the message, I hope one of the things that comes out of this is that what we already know, all of us, each of us is better than our biggest mistake. And that was one of the themes that kept driving me as I was writing this. Is 
I wanted to give them moments for readers, even though when they were furious, like I remember my agent calling me at one point when she was reading it and she said, I am so mad at Brooke right now. And she says, I like him. I want to like him. And he keeps screwing up. That's what you want, right? As a novelist, you want them to be so real that you keep looking for reasons to excuse them or forgive them or to hope for them that they're going to get better. And what I love about your characters, nobody's perfect and, and everybody's got a little bit of not good and bad, but that, that gray, everybody's a bit of a gray that, you know, there's no caricatures, there's no cardboard type people in your book. Well, thank you for saying that. That was certainly another one of my goals. I mean, again, you and I grew up in the working class and we knew all kinds of working class people. They weren't all white. Let's start there. They never have been. Some were determined to do the best they could at all times. Some fell under the weight of the world and the problems. I mean, what we know about the working classes, we're just like everyone else who's born lucky. We have our own hopes and dreams. Parents have their aspirations for their children, but then the big problems come and lives get derailed because there's no money to fix them. And I wanted to show the full depth and breadth of the working class because, well, look, it produced me, it produced you, it's produced so many people I know and respect. When I first started writing my column in Cleveland, the first thing I did was write about my dad's lunch pail because I knew it would close the distance with so many people who are either from the working class or only one, maybe two at most generations away from it. And I think you're right about those people needing a voice. I wrote a column once about my dad and how in the world he wasn't anything big, but he would drive us around and point the roofs he put on and how he gave us a moral compass. And this man called me at shift change at like, I don't know what got off an hour in the morning on my voicemail. And he said, I'm going to keep that in my lunch pail. Oh, that column on, on my dad, because, you know, men like your dad, my dad, the world really doesn't notice them unless there's a problem, you know, right. They're the ones right. that pull the fabric together, women too, all those essential workers, you know, we, we look at it as non-essential and yet they, the plumbers, the mechanics, the nurses, aides, the orderlies, we've collapsed without them. Well, and it has occurred to me repeatedly that were my mom and dad alive today in a working age, they would both be considered essential workers. I picked the two main professions of the book to uh, reflect my parents on purpose. Uh, Ellie is a nurse's aide, and my father is a utility worker. And much like your dad with the roofs, I, I actually have a standard that did come from my childhood, just the beginning part of it. I, when I was little, my mom would always say, thank your dad, thank daddy, when we turn on a light. And I thought he was harnessing lightning from the sky and throwing it to our house. And the plastic was protecting us from getting shot. I mean, when you're a child, you want to believe big things about your fathers, right? And they were doing big things in our lives, your dad and mine. Yeah, they were holding it all together. Uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit too about the small town. I grew up in Ravenna. I think the population when I was a kid was 10,000. And sadly, it might be less today. And Astropula, well, what's their population roughly, Astropula? It was 26,000 when I was there. I have Erie Town at that. I do believe it also has lost some population. Right. So the idea of a small town and, you know, growing up in a small town, there were wonderful things about it, believe me. But there was also limitations. The expectations were kind of low. I hate to say the bar was set low, but in some ways it was. You were decided you were either college material or you weren't. And if you're a college material, you were going to go in my town to Kent State, which was six miles away. But to go to Ohio State was a big dream. I mean, Ivy League was out of the question. It wasn't even in our right. world. We didn't even know the names of those schools. So how did you come from that small town and, and be able to dream big to, to get to the life you have? I did have people in my life who wanted to dream big for me. I mean, my parents knew they wanted me to go to college, but they didn't really know how to get me there. All they knew is I was going. You know, that was my dad's promise 
which is why that first column was titled A Promise and a Lunch Pail. He vowed that none of his kids would carry a lunch pail to work. This mattered to him, but it was a mark of pride for him as much as anything else. It really wasn't, he wasn't look, you know, looking farther down the road in terms of what that would mean for me necessarily beyond I would do th different things for a living. I had teachers early, a couple of them, uh, interestingly, both male. The only female teacher I really wanted to believe in me wouldn't recommend me for honors English in my senior year. And when I said, but I want to be a writer. And she said, Connie, you're not going to be a writer. Oh, oh so, still alive? <laughs> no, no, she's oh, not. Um, but, you know, I think early that instilled in me, our old, you know, Bill Lubinger, our former colleague, yeah. and my dear friend Bill Lubinger once said, if you want to get Connie to do something, tell her no. And I think that's probably where that originated way back when those kind of environments where we weren't encouraged as much. What was interesting to me is nobody at home, back home, my parents' friends were surprised when I did go off to college and launch this career. And they love to claim you in that way, I guess, you know, and, <laughs> um, and I like to claim them. I didn't name the town Ashtabula because my editor very wisely said, do not make it a real town because everyone will tell you what you got wrong. Right. So right. I made it Erie town and I can make it different from Ashtabula in the ways that I want to. Um, but it's still absolutely a tribute to the city where that raised me. And, you know, Regina, the other thing is we weren't allowed to dream in the same ways because we were surrounded by people who were really working hard and barely making it. Mm -hmm. um, and this is still true of neighborhoods like ours. But the thing is, we also knew kids whose parents wore ties to work and who were doing better. Right. We had we had the mix. But we also like I have the Vietnam War in there. And I'm sure this was true of Ravenna as well. We, our county, lost 26 boys in that war, and, it, and countless others from Ashtabula served. So it was so much a part of my growing up to see mostly my friends' brothers come and go, some of them die, my mother making casseroles all the time to take to homes for three reasons, right? right. Setting right. them off, welcoming them home, or funeral. Yeah. And so you have, we have a different um, idea of the world, you and I, because of what we experienced growing up. We even had a casserole named Funeral Potatoes. They were I don't, potatoes. That doesn't surprise me at all. They, they were potatoes with corn, corn flakes grounded up on the top. Our friend Sue Klein has death chicken. Same <laughs> thing. It's a casserole. It's, and it has been so often brought to homes when someone's died. Yeah. You have a line in your book that says, don't let your roots become your excuse to be stuck. And I know that even when you leave a small town, you can still have the roots that keep you stuck. I have friends on Facebook from my hometown who still have such narrow views about race. It breaks my heart. Right. There's part of them that kind of never grew beyond whatever the thinking was in my town at the time about race. So how do you get unstuck now, even when you've left a small town, if some of those values really aren't ones that work in the world that we live in today? Well, racism is in particular what I think about when I say our roots are our beginnings, but they are not our excuses. I say that frequently in my columns and in discourse on social media. I grew up in a racist home. I wrote about that for The Atlantic several years before my book came out. And for me, I know that one of the advantages was, like Sam McGinty in the book, every one of my classrooms, all through elementary school, half my classmates were Black. And when you grow up knowing that your friends don't have to look like you to be like you, it really informs the trajectory of your thinking. But I also feel so strongly this, Regina, that when we become adults, we choose what we will hate. We, these are all choices we make every day. And we can choose to open our minds and our hearts. I am so heartened by what we're seeing right now across the country. 
I think that some of the scholars who've been arguing that this is the launch of the, the new civil rights movement, I think they may be right. So I take heart. Plus, you and I both know plenty of people with working class roots who are not racist, who try very hard to combat racism, to be anti-racist, I think, which is the more important part here now. And I think for me, growing up in a small town, our town was very segregated. We have two allotments for uh, Skeels and McElworth, and the and Black people lived in those parts of town. And I think I'm still waking up to what it truly means to be a racist, what it means to just be asleep as a white person. And and I think your novel just kind of cracks that open in a gentle way. When you have that line, God loves everyone, even the bigots, I, I feel like it isn't just a throwaway line. It's that these are people that are still trying to figure it out. And it's hard to have compassion sometimes, to be honest. I've unfriended some people that I'm like, I just can't do that anymore. But yes. I love the idea that our job is to love them and maybe the ones we can to invite them forward. Well, that line about the bigotry, you might recall, too, was a non-Catholic neighbor visiting the non-Catholic McGinty's who couldn't believe they had a portrait of a Catholic president, John Kennedy's, uh, right next to Jesus, right? Bigotry comes in all forms. Sure, sure. I find I've grown more impatient with the aggressive bigotry, where it's not just simply, I believe this, but that they go after people. I'm sad that wearing a mask right now, face mask, which saves lives, has become a partisan issue. And I find that I'm not willing to cut the slack I once was. Well, we'll get them there. We'll get the, No, you need to get there now, because <laughs> many of the people affecting them are young people who are asymptomatic, and older people are going to die because you're not wearing them. So I think you and I come at it a little differently. You'll always be the gentler approach, I think. Well, I, I wish I was as bold as you were. You you always have had that really powerful, come on, people, get on board voice in a, in a great way. And I feel like I, I tiptoe forward and you're like marching ahead, which I think the world needs us both. So, I, I was just going to say, I think exactly that. The world needs both of us. Before we leave this small town idea, you have a great character in your book, The Daughters of Your Town. The coach, there's one person who really believes for Brick, that, that there can be a bigger life. And he says, um, you have to leave this school, this town. You have to leave this life behind you. And he does some wonderful little gestures that I don't want to reveal because I think it's fun to kind of have, be surprised by them. But I wonder, did you have a person or were there a few people that were your like kind of shove you out of the nest person or just believed in you when maybe other people didn't? I had a teacher named uh, Tom Carr. And he said almost precisely that to me at one point, that you're going to have to get out of here. You've got a lot of talent and that this place is going to hold you down right now. Understand, Ashtabula is beloved to me for so many reasons, but I always have acknowledged that I had to leave to decide who I wanted to be and who I was going to be. I think that's probably true of a lot of small towns because everyone thinks they know you. And if you have a different vision of yourself, you have to break free from that so you can explore who, who you think you could be. And then I had... Um, Joe Petra, who told me, he was a guidance counselor, you're going to have to work for a living for a long time and you should love what you do. And no one had ever told me that because I had parents who did what they did. My mother did come to love her job. My father hated his job. Talked about it all the time how much he hated it. No one had told me that you could make a living doing something you love. And that was a real gift. You're right. It was a role model in my house. My mom had 11 kids, so she was working at home with all of us. But my dad, I mean, he lived in blue collar shirts and dicky pants and um, steel toe work boots. And it never looked like he was having fun. It looked painful and he was sore. And every night he put liniment on his aching muscles. And, and what we did was we said, we don't want to work that hard. We want to go to college. And that sounds hard, but that was the motivation to have not an easier life, but 
to use the rest of us, not just our bodies, you know, because that, that does wear you out. Well, Sharon and I have both talked about how no matter how hard a day we have, we will never work as hard as my parents did and as people like them do now. My mom died at my age, 62. And my dad died at 69. I mean, if you don't think that's been weighing as this book comes out. And I've always said that they wore their bodies out so that their children would never have to. Wow. I remember you wrote a little bit about how hard that was to be the age that your mom was to grow older than your mom. How do you wrap your heart around that? Well, I'm going to be 63 in a few weeks here. Not not even a few. I'll be 63 on July 21st. And I'm sure had my mother still been living, uh, I would have looked at this very differently. I would have felt like I'm just getting old. Instead, I, I really do get this chance. I never, I've never lied about my age. Part of it is I just don't want women to feel defensive about their age. So you got you to gotta model what you say you believe in. But I feel really lucky. I hear you, Connie. Well, we're at the halfway mark. So I want to pause. And I want to thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to my guest, Connie Schultz. I know you have a lot of podcast choices, and I'm really grateful you chose to listen to mine. Connie, something that I, I was intrigued by in your book, when people talk about God in your book, it's always kind of not blaming God, but it's never a God of joy or like, <laughs> wow, God wants something better than we want. It's kind of like, you know, God was mad at her. Ellie's God flipped his finger. Um, God made the world for men. Uh, and God blows up your plans. And I just kept almost, I kept like a little record of like all the different pages. We get the life that God planned. But in the book, it sounds like a less than. And I wonder if you think most people kind of have that experience of a God that maybe isn't user-friendly, so to speak? Well, most of these people, they're working class. Most of them are probably Democrats, I would say. But they have been raised in a conservative notion of what God is, right? God is somebody that we, we are constantly failing to measure up to. He'll still love us. But my faith does not reflect that. My mother's faith increasingly did not. She, she was the one who told us God loves everyone. And uh, she also said, which I've quoted countless times, being a Christian means fixing yourself and helping others, not the other way around, which I think is such a perfect model for the Christian right to be considering. But I think in that time, I mean, keep in mind, it was the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and women were supposed to enjoy sex. They were, I mean, Ellie Early had some guilty feelings at times, and she starts to get defiant about it, because why shouldn't she? also have this fence because girls were raised to believe only boys could feel that. And that scene where she goes through her hope chest as a mother and finds that old book, that's a real book. That really was a passage from a real book. And it just makes women feel so responsible for everything. So I can see why they would think God wasn't on their side necessarily much of the time. I want to talk more about your mom too, Janie Schultz. Oh, the hair. You've you've posted so many pictures of your mom's hair. It had its own zip code, you know? Uh, Your mom was so interesting and it's almost like she lived kind of in a small city in a small life and yet was like an exclamation point in her own way. She was to me, but not to herself. And I would say she was to others, but not to herself. And I told this story in a TEDx talk a number of years ago, 16, in 2016. But two weeks before she died, I um, was driving her to yet another appointment because I was with her constantly. And I I just got, I was getting emotional. I said, mom, I'm sorry. I've always had all these opinions. I'm always spouting them off. I'm always making sure people know that. And she grabbed my hand and she said, honey, you're who I wanted to be. And it really stayed with me. I'll tell you, it has stayed with me for the years, 20, more than 20 years now. When she said that, how did that land on your heart? That's so powerful. 
I was really sad because I knew that there were things my mom wanted to do, wanted to believe about herself. My dad was a very controlling man, made her feel really small a lot of the time. And me, everybody has their flaws. That was definitely one of my father's. And she had wished that she were braver. She was really trying in her own way, but she was scared to try new things. I would take her on trips and stuff. I try to get her to do stuff whenever I could, but she always saw me as the brave one. And you are, how, where did you get your bravery from? I really, you are a very bold voice and I've always admired that and envied that. Where did you oh, get Thank you. I don't think of myself as brave. I just think of myself as weighing the options and that I'm going to have more regret if I don't speak out. I mean, it's much easier, as you know, to advocate for others than for ourselves. We both worked in newsrooms. We both worked in a snake pit of a newsroom. I love the people in it, but management was really hard often for women. And I, I think I had good training before I got there, but having grown up my father's daughter to fight for the chance to fight for people I believe in and to fight for the stories that I wanted to write. So, you know, you either become, I don't know, like everyone else, you become afraid of them or you just say, what's the worst that could happen? I could lose this job and I'll get another one. <laughs> I just love your boldness. Let me get back to your mom. You used in the book, something I think is so so uh, eloquent. Your mom once made a list of the duties that she had as a nurse assistant. And I think you, your sisters found it when they were cleaning out the house. Yes. my This was actually after both my parents had died. My mom had died and then my dad died six years later. And I was on the campaign trail to share it. That's when I took a leave of absence from the plane dealer to campaign with him in 2006. Uh, my sisters were cleaning out the house and they found, and the thing was, there's a copy for every, by number, every member of the family, but none of us ever got it. And it haunts me. Uh, I wish I could ask her about it. Just reading it, I realized I never had any idea all that she had done as a nurse's aide. So when Ellie has this moment in the book with Brick and she feels like he just doesn't even understand why she likes her job or why she matters, I have her sit down and it, by herself. She's never gone to a restaurant by herself before. Just one act of, of liberation after another. And um, she sits down and writes, her list is a partial list of my mother's list, which was several pages. I knew pretty early in the book that I was going to do that. I just didn't know where it was going to land, but I knew I was going to do it. It was my nod to my mother that so that at least now everyone knows what she used to do. And, and boy, she, I feel like she left that for you. Like uh, use this Connie. Here's some really great material to understand. <laughs> I mean, oh, she would have loved this book. She, she would have loved this book. She, she didn't live to see anything. She didn't live to meet Sherrod. She didn't live for the Pulitzer. Right. She would have just loved all of this. Yeah. Now your mom was a nurse assistant on a mental health unit, which I think is very powerful. And you lost your brother a year ago. You dedicate the book in part to your brother, Chucky. And I think that's one that's beautiful that you're able to make that a gift to him. You wrote a beautiful column about when you have a suicide in your family, how to respond and how not to respond. And, And I so value that because my husband lost two cousins to suicide. I've lost two dear friends. My cousin's daughter took her life when she was 16. And it's so hard to talk about because everybody's afraid to talk about it. And they don't know what to say, so they don't say anything. But I just wonder, your mom working with mental health, that whole idea of people who have mental health issues, what is our best way to be present for them while they are here? I don't know. If the question is, how do we prevent suicide? I don't know the answer. And what I'm saying is that's how I hear it right now. Because oh, gosh, that's- oh. Oh, I know you don't mean it that way. What I mean is when you outlive somebody you love who's committed suicide, who's killed himself, as my brother did, I wasn't going to write about that he had killed himself. I had mentioned it briefly 
on Facebook that I said his obituary that I was writing would not. I had hundreds of people writing to me, pleading with me, please say he killed himself because, and these were mostly people who had, you know, who had lost somebody. They said, we're not allowed to talk about it. And the thing about suicide is the hardest part of my brother's death was the way it came about. It was how he died. And I had intervened twice before over a number of years to prevent it. So he found a different way. And I thought I was there for him. I understand when people can get, he was a, he was an alcoholic. I mean, he had just come out of two and a half months of residential treatment. Um, But he, at that point was homeless, didn't want to live with anyone. He wanted his own place. He'd lost his car. A friend had given him a car for a while. This was a man who used to make six figures as a pharmaceutical rep. Everything was derailed by his drinking. So what I focus on right now is, of course, I want more guidance on how we can be there for people who are suffering from severe mental illness. But I'm also really mindful of the people who are left behind will feel blame and guilt for the rest of their lives, even though it's so clear there was nothing we could do ultimately to prevent it. And I think I was thinking more in terms of, as a society, we've done so little to really focus on mental health as far as... Absolutely, we have. That's what I meant. Not you personally, but... No, no, I knew you didn't. Yeah, yeah. I was just responding from where my head is. And and my brother, because he... You know, when you are male and homeless, when you are lost your job, it is much harder to get help. And he was in a um, state-funded residential care, but he could only stay for so long, and then he had to get kicked out. And that was part of it. And and they, they said he was ready to go. A week later, he killed himself. So clearly, he was not ready to go. But to me, the whole system has been so challenging. It was easier to get him medication and care than it was to get him food and housing. And when you're mentally ill, I, I was just thinking about him this morning, listening to the housing crisis. And I had read a piece about what's going on in Columbus now with eviction courts and thinking, right, right. what are the homeless doing? Where They must be out of their minds scared right now. Right. And so many people who are homeless mental health issues have helped put them there. I remember um, when a Cleveland Heights uh, police officer was killed years ago, the man who killed him was mentally ill. His mother had tried to get him help, tried to get him help and could not get him help. And um, I interviewed right. him once and it broke my heart that here was a parent saying, he's going to do something some of the day, help me. And there just weren't the resources. So no. I, guess I, I hope that as a Society, the more we talk about this and make it that I've had this happen, you've had this happen as a society, we've got to do more. These aren't just some people that are homeless. They're our brothers, our cousins, our our people, our family. But I love that you dedicated to Chucky and your grandchildren. You have seven grandchildren now? Seven grandchildren. And I got to tell you, I don't know, are they competing with the two dogs? You know, the dogs <laughs> are out of play on your Facebook <laughs> Those dogs, well, first of all, Franklin and Walter, they really have their own fan base, clearly, and it's bigger than both of ours combined. But they are a wonderful companionship for me. And when Sherry comes home, I get to see the boy and my husband because they go crazy when he comes. They have their, you know how babies have their different cries for, I'm wet, I'm hungry. <laughs> I mean, they have the Sherry bark when he comes in the door. That's how I know he's home. We're big pet lovers. Most people, you know, we know so many people are, so that doesn't make us unique in any, any way whatsoever. And we rescue. We like having mixed rescues. Of course. I want to talk a little bit about your teaching before we end, because you've not only had these successes for yourself, but you really spread out who you are and help the next people. They say, carry as you climb. You are constantly yes. helping people up the ladder, helping them build their ladder, helping them figure out where to move it. Tell us about why you ended up at Kent State doing what you're doing. Well, it was pitched to me as an opportunity to come back 
to my alma mater and have the students see some semblance of themselves perhaps in me. Many of my students are first generation college students. Virtually all of them have to hold jobs while they are going to school as you and I always did. And I think that much of my optimism these days comes from knowing these young people. They are so talented. When I went to a conference right after the election, the presidential election 16, the um, editor's conference in Washington, I was invited to speak. And one of the questions was, how did we miss all those Trump voters? I said, well, if you were hiring more students like mine, instead of Ivy League kids, you would have known about those Trump voters because they live among them. They have relatives who are them. They know those areas of the country very well. So in watching them make the pivot twice now, I've been there since January 16. I saw them pivot after the election of a president calling us the enemy of the people. It feels like our Watergate moment, except much worse. All they want to do is hold government accountable in, in different ways. And I've seen the pivot during the coronavirus. Um, they were, they, first of all, couldn't quite believe it. Then they were scared. And now they're trying to figure out how to answer the call to have meaningful lives during a time when everything has changed. They are just a remarkable group of people. I like what you just said, to have meaningful lives. That is so powerful because really that's what you're doing with this book, The Daughters of Town, is to really say, wow, my mom lived a meaningful life and I'm going to give yeah. it like giving her an audience. You've talked about giving women and men like your mom and dad an audience of people that can say, hey, this is a meaningful life. I think sometimes we have this celebrityism and you, know, you have to have extra yes. followers and yet there's people that are living what we think are small lives and yet, wow, the, the ripples that they have, that your mom, all well, have- the people she touched. Well, and and Regina, this is the other part of the feminist movement. These were the women who were not included in that movement, but were still experiencing the ripples of the movement and trying to figure out where their place was in the world and what where they could grow and where they could push themselves. And I wanted to be able to tell their story. That's really important. The idea of feminism, you know, I resisted it growing up because it felt like it was for women that already had power, so to speak. I mean, my mom had 11 kids. And didn't work outside the home. Didn't have a driver's license until, gosh, I don't know, after I was already out of the house, I think. So she oh, was that right? Wow. Yeah. She went to get a driver's <laughs> license and found that she had no birth certificate. She was born in Czechoslovakia, which she never knew. That's another story. But but <laughs> the idea of women, women having power, I remember, you know, the bra burners. and But it felt like women that I couldn't relate to at the time because they seemed to already have power. And I think right now they're, maybe it's classism. I don't know what you call it. But there are people who... I see kind of on the front lines with power, fighting for more power. And there are people that still don't know how to just find their place, their, their meaningful life. The shift for me, I mean, I, I idolized Gloria Steinem when I was in college. She was, to me, you know, I wanted to be like her. And uh, one of my most rewarding moments was to tell her that one years later to share a stage with her and tell her that my daughter's Cabbage Patch doll was named Gloria Steinem because we weren't going to take any chances with that one. But <laughs> For me, I see feminism, especially my role now, is I have a megaphone, and it is my duty, again, to carry as I climb and to give more opportunities in any way I can, create opportunities to create formats and just wide berths for those who would otherwise be ignored. I I say this all the time, that we don't have to step aside for young women, but we do need to make room for them because they're wise and they have a lot of great ideas. And they, are they great leaders yet? Many of them need some help. Could some of us, you know, we're the first generation, Regina, full of women who have been leaders. We're the first. So how are we going to use this now for the next generations coming up? That's really powerful to look at the, the last part of my life. How am I going to be there for others? And I think there is that turning point when you 
I don't know, late 50s, 60s, where I heard somebody say recently, they want to die on empty. They want to use up what they've been given. And I feel like that's what they have now is to give it away, so to speak. Now, George Bernard Shaw said, I want to be all used up when I die. And Sharon and I, on our first date, he brought up two pages of his favorite quotes. And it, that was at the top of his. And that was always my favorite. I, it's a longer quote, but ultimate line there is, I want to be all used up when I die. And so this is how we do that. Right. We, you're right. We do start thinking in terms of, I mean, I still have dreams for my own life. I'm working on my next novel, of course, still teaching, but I am much more mindful of the opportunities I can create for others than I was even 10 years ago. Now, Connie, I did not mention much about your husband, uh, U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, because you're the focus, but I, I do love Sherrod. I met him, gosh, years ago in Lorraine, when I, he was running for you met him before I did. I did. I met his dad, Charlie Brown, which I thought was funny. His name was Charlie. But what I wonder is being married to you, a senator, and having politics so much a part of your life anyway, but also with Sherrod being on the on the front lines. How do you find some refuge, uh, not from it, but in the midst of so much uh, negativity and hate and stuff that spewed from? Uh, yeah, I don't want to get too much into the negativity of what I see happening from the Oval Office. But I wonder, how do you and Sherrod kind of stay in that front line, fighting the good fight and not have it wear you out? Like, how do you take care of yourself kind of soul-wise? Do you know what I mean? I would say we take care of each other. We've kind of joked, but we actually really mean it. We had 45 straight days together during this quarantine, which we have never experienced before because he's usually back and forth to Washington. And it was what a wonderful thing to discover, just how much we enjoy each other's company still <laughs> after um, these years of marriage. And, and you had, by the way, you just had a recent anniversary. Congratulations. I saw that. So we have a rule that when we're in public, we belong to the public. We're not out in public much at all right now. And if we are, we wear masks. And he doesn't like me to go out by myself only because if we never know what's going to happen when someone recognizes us. It's mostly pleasant, but not always. And these are very volatile times right now. But we go for long walks and we spend a lot of time. We talk day in and day out all day long when he's gone. You know what is at the heart of that is love. It sounds so corny and yet it is everything. The thing that keeps us grounded is love. And not just for each other, but of course it starts with that. We love our children and our, our grandchildren. We love our friends. And it's amazing, isn't it? After all this, how complicated the world can seem that the most simple binding grounding element of life is love. That is beautiful, Connie. And and I love that you pass it you pass it on to the next generation. You you truly do love your students. You can tell when, when I read you on Facebook. I love them. Nobody warned me that I was gonna love them. <laughs> <laughs> that is so beautiful. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. Connie, what's the best way to connect with you uh, on a website, social media? What's the best way to find you if people haven't found well, you? Well, of course I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook and it's a public page. It's a personal page, but it's public, and my Gmail um, account is located there as well. So you can find my email address. You can find me in private message. It's easier to send it as an email. I don't check Facebook messages as often, but people seem to have a way of finding me. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, Connie, I just, I want to thank you so much. You gave me so many takeaways today and that idea of really not losing sight of that. Love is really the core of it, the be all, the end all of all of this. So I want you to close with your answer to this question. What is the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? I start by, quite literally, I try to remember to do this every day, thanking God and starting to list my blessings. <laughs> and you don't have to believe in God to lead a life of gratitude. I am lucky that I haven't gotten the virus. As you know, I'm, I'm 62 with asthma. I am lucky. I feel blessed. And then I light a candle, a three-wick candle, 
I like that one week is for those who are right now struggling, particularly with coronavirus. The second one is for the people who are caring for them. And the third one is for those who grieve. And those two rituals of my day seem to, I'm going through an awful lot of candles, um, <laughs> as I should, you know, but uh, those two things seem to help me stay tethered. That's beautiful, Connie. Well, Connie, thank you so much for joining us. And again, thank you for your book, The Daughters of Erie Town. I can't wait to read the next novel. What's the, <laughs> what's the projected, uh, are we thinking years? <laughs> you know what? Don't start talking like that. Don't start talking like that. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.